thank you very much. I like to stand up when I talk because it's good for the voice and then I can see everybody. Um, thank you for the very kind introduction. I'm indeed a journalist. I'm German by birth and Danish by choice. <laughs> and I moved to Denmark when I was 19 because, because I fell in love, which is a very good reason. Um, and I mentioned this because uh, I'm sure that part of this work is because I have, uh, through this move, the capacity of seeing both my countries from within and from outside. Um, and that's, that's the capacity that we use when we do cross-border reporting. We need to understand each other and we need to understand who we are so that we can take a step back and say, that's all very nice and well, but it's not the only real right thing to do in the world. Now, have you heard of tax evasion by Luxembourg? Yeah. Have you heard of money flows to Russia, the big uh, Reuters special investigation? Who's heard of that? Anybody? No. You no. should, it's really interesting. No. Um, CIA and rendition flights. Yeah, yes. Side effects of medicines in Europe. Some may have. European agricultural subsidies. Yeah, yeah. For all these themes, and this is just a few, I, I'll use quite a few examples because I'm a journalist, I like examples. All these cross border collaborative journalism has been a part of the method of digging out this information that then came to the public. And I have, a, I have prepared a piece of paper that I'll mail to someone you mean, you to so me that you can language. have the links. You don't have to take notes every second. Now, what is cross-border journalism? I try to, uh, my work these years is that I try to boil down the experience that has been done by uh, journalists in the past years who were experimenting with this type of journalism and try to boil it down into the sort of methodology so that we can pass it on to, to others. So what is it? It's journalists from different countries who collaborate to research a subject that is relevant in all these countries. Um, they then have a nice pile of research that they put together and they cross-check each other's and they merge it to one story because the same story, the same facts may look differently whether you look from Greece or you look from Germany. And if you then sit together and say, okay, but these are the facts, this is what we can document, then you can write a different story and if you have a very opinionated piece seen only from one country, so you merge it and you fact check together. And then you publish to each your target group, because when you tell the facts about Germany and Greece to each your target group, you have to know this target group so that they, don't, that they understand it. Uh, you can't just write one English news piece and then translate it into Greek and German, because, I mean, ask any marketing person, would they do that? No, of course they would reach out to their individual target groups. As journalists, we are used to knowing our target groups and to reaching out to them, but we are not so used to doing that for different languages, different countries. This is what we have to think of when we do cross-border journalism. Go on here. So the, the themes we had before were like the, the big CIA rendition, tax evasion. If we go to the everyday reporting, there are stories there too. Like in many Western capitals, I, uh, for those of you who don't come from Europe, I'm aware that quite a few here from 
or not from Europe. These are European-centered examples, but many of them would be transferable, or the principles in them would be transferable to other parts of the world. So just bear over with me that these are European examples, and then let's try together to move them to, to the principal level and to other countries. Now this is a picture we see in many places in particularly Western European cities. It's a Roma woman, uh, most likely from Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, or the Balkans, who is sitting there begging with a child. If you look at the child, the size is two, three years maybe. Uh, and these children, they lay on the lap of their mothers and sleep for hours and hours while the mothers are begging. Now everybody who ever has had to do with children would know that children older than three months would not lay down sleeping for hours and hours unless you do something with them. So this is a woman who is begging, so we assume this, she is not terribly happy with that, and she has to do something to her child to fulfill this picture of the suffering mother, and we assume that as a mother she wouldn't like to do something to her child that is not good for her child. So how do I address this? I don't speak her language. She's in my city. She's sitting in this is this is German, it's not Copenhagen, but she's sitting there and I can't talk with her because I don't have the language. It's actually a story that was done by some colleagues. Um, Roma people trafficked to Germany and France from, in this case, Bulgaria. So there was a team of German journalists who were looking at the situation of the women, uh, of the Roma people in Germany, how they were abused, how their passports were taken away, how they were disorganized begging. And then they collaborated with a Bulgarian journalist who had experience with organized crime. And he took and he tried to figure out who organized this traffic of the begging people. And uh, this journalism fund gives research grants for cross-border collaboration so that they can travel and translate and whatever they need. And I, I, I called him and said, when are you going to publish? The Germans have published already. And he said, easy, easy. Give me a couple of days, because then I'll quote the German story. The guy who is trafficking these people, uh, whom they traced, is still in jail, but only three more months. I want to quote the Germans so that I'm safe. So they researched together, merged the story, published in Germany, and then he quoted for his own safety reason. It's an everyday story. I mean, we stumble over this kind of stories every day, and we feel powerless because we don't want this type of suffering in our cities. This is another good reason why we should do cross-border journalism. This is the so-called family picture of the European Union. Uh, everybody who's covered the EU has seen this type of picture, or if you do television, you see the people arriving, getting out of cars, saying hello, uh, giving a few quotes to journalists, and then disappearing. Uh, this is not really exciting coverage, right? But each of them represent a country where the decisions that they make have an impact. And if then journalists in each of these countries collaborate and see, okay, is the impact right or should it be adjusted, then all of a sudden we have a story with real people, with a real effect, and we hold them accountable rather than just giving them a short quote. And this is, now this is the European Union, but it can be replicated for all international organizations. Uh, you take the World Trade Organization, you take any, uh, any trade agreement, uh, in, as we go to more governance rather than government, 
quite a few of the regulatory power, uh, powers are transferred to trade agreements between countries. So go to trade agreements, see the effect of that. You know, all the international organizations, also by sector, there are loads of bi-sector uh, agreements between countries. Every time you have an international agreement, you can grab the responsible and say, okay, you decided that, what is the effect? And then take this back to them and say, okay, this may need adjustment if we want to move on to, to holding accountable. This is another everyday example, our food. Um, we had a story about tomato puree made in Italy. Uh, actually, it was canned in Italy. It was produced in China. It was imported to the EU via Romania. It, it was transferred to Italy where it was canned and then sold as made in Italy. So it is not made in Italy. And if you want food control, I mean tomatoes, uh, there may be issues of pesticides or whatever. Uh, if you want to control our food, then we need to, to do this kind of journalism. The first example, and again, uh, I like examples, and uh, there is more theoretical material uh, in the links afterwards. Um, the first example of a large cross-border story was um, that I know of is tobacco smuggling in 2001. There were some uh, large tobacco companies who had been sued by several United States states. Um, and the state said, you are expensive in health costs, or your products cause a lot of health costs, we want some money. And there was a, an agreement made that included some money to the states, and that also included publication of documents of these companies. So there was a library of internal company, tobacco company documents in the US, and a library of internal tobacco company companies here just uh, west of London. And Maud Bielman was sitting for the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in the US, and she browsed this library and was looking for documents and was looking for stories. And Duncan Campbell here from, from the United Kingdom, he was browsing through the archives in uh, near London. And then they found this internal marketing document for marketing of cigarettes to Latin America, which included a string of sales, uh, a sales route to the San Andresitos. And neither Maud nor Duncan knew really what to do about that. Because they couldn't find it on the map. As I was going to say, is it a place? They couldn't figure okay. it out. Okay. And San Andreas is a, is a saint and so on. And then they got uh, Maria Teresa Randeras aboard. She's from Colombia. And she was just laughing. <laughs> because San Andresitos is a word, way of saying black market. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden, they had a document, an internal document, uh, black and white. And they could write uh, this kind of stories that had a huge impact about production for black market. And I'll send you, the, the links are in the, in the paper that I send you afterwards. So this was the, the first that I know of. I'm aware that there have been experiments before 2001, but I see the past 15 years or so that 
there is a more systematic approach by journalists all over the place to do this in smaller or larger scale. Um, and the context that I see is a movement in investigative, can you see or am I in the way? Um, in investigative journalism that we, we journalists are organizing more to share methods and develop methods. Um, the start was in the US in the 70s with the investigative reporters and editors. Um, before that, we were all lone wolves and we were competing fiercely. <coughs> we still do that. But in between, we are not stupid, in between we meet and say, okay, if I use the FOI, the Freedom of Information Act, in this way, uh, how can we improve the use of the FOI? How can we improve the use of data? How can we improve our interview techniques, etc., etc.? So we meet and gather and exchange experiences and say, okay, I did it this way, the obstacles I had were like that, and I overmounted, I surmounted it like that, and then we share, and we are inspired, and then we leave and we compete again. <laughs> um, so this is the model of the investigative reporters and editors. They have small and larger conferences to do that. Inspired from the IRE was uh, the foundation of the Nordic countries who have uh, these kind of uh, organizations. And there's some Finnish here, Tutkeva in Finland, Greve yeah. um, in Sweden, Skup in Norway, uh, and FUJ in Denmark. They were founded around 1890, uh, following the same principle. The, the history of these organizations is a bit up and down. Sometimes they're more active than others. They are membership-based organizations. And then around 2000-2001, the, the organization sort of exploded all over Europe. Now we have investigative journalism units, one way or the other. And it plotted in between the internal market, again we are here in Europe, and the EU enlargement, which made it so much more important that we use these methods of cross-border um, collaboration. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is the usual pep talk. <laughs> when you collaborate in a team, you have more research power simply because you're more people. Uh, you can compose the team with the necessary competences. So, in terms of languages, in terms of a network of sources. I've participated several times in teams where they pulled me in because I know Brussels. So I'm the EU nerd in the, in the teams where uh, you have team members who know something about fisheries or about uh, Spanish business or whatever. And I'm the EU nerd who knows about Brussels and uh, following Brussels spending. Um, so you, you compose the team according to what you need. Um, when you have a team, I mean, the story is relevant in all team members' countries, and so you can address each your target group. And that's really important because um, another tobacco story, there was a, um, Duncan was aboard again, and then there were some Russian journalists, a Ukrainian journalists, uh, one Russian, one Ukrainian, one Romanian, and then Duncan Campbell here from the first tobacco story, another ICIJ team. And they uh, published with the ICIJ in English on their website. Everything was nicely cross-checked by the American lawyers. And the Romanian journalist had contributed significant material. And then he said, yeah, I waited until they were done. And then I rewrote it completely for the Romanian target group. Because in the US, Anglo-Saxon, Danish, Nordic tradition, 
you would have the result in the headline. I, this is the news. And in Romania or Southeastern Europe, if you put the news on the front page, why would you buy the paper? <laughs> yeah. You want the crime story. The journalist got a tip and was so and so dangerous. And they went under a couple with a camera. <laughs> and then all, at the end of page six, like in a crime story, you get the result. <laughs> and they survived. So, so this, this way of storytelling is just so different. He, the, he, the way the word he used is that when I tried to explain the American coming, uh, colleagues the way we do it, they said, oh, this is like a soap opera. <laughs> and said, yes, but I want to sell the newspaper. And, and so the, we have to be respectful of that if we want to reach our audiences. Because if we tr just translate the English version or the English Anglo-Saxon style version into Romanian and put it in their newspaper, if they don't buy it, if they don't read it, it doesn't make much sense. So we have to be respectful of that. Um, and then uh, the LuxLeaks story, people here nodded because uh, the Luxembourg League story was initially published uh, in France and in the UK by Le Monde and BBC. And this is a story about Luxembourg, just, Luxembourg remind, us, just remind us what Tax evasion via or tax optimization is the proper word. It's not evasion. They do pay a little tax. It's tax optimization via Luxembourg. So Luxembourg gets a little tax which makes it legal. It's not illegal. It makes it legal because they do pay taxes in Europe, but then they channel money out via Luxembourg out of the EU. And there was a leak. It was published in uh, Le Monde, some elements of it, it published in the UK, with no big impact. And so then there was a collaboration between the ICIJ, which is a network of journalists all over the place, and the, the people who had the, the leak. And uh, they analyzed it together, and then they, I think it was published simultaneously in 20 plus countries in one moment. And then all of a sudden everybody talked about it. So if we talk about impact, you do get stronger impact if you coordinate it. Or we assume that we get stronger impact. We attempt to get stronger impact by coordinating. Now I'll move to another example. This is on how you get going. We know these pictures from the Mediterranean. Uh, refugees arriving and uh, we, ha we hear a lot about refugees dying when they attempt to, do, to come to Europe. Um, there was a a team of young journalists, some of them data journalists, some of them, ma many of them focus on data, and they, they said, we, we really, we wanted figures about how many people die trying to get to Europe, and they didn't trust the figures that were available. And they started out with two who had met at a conference or so, and said, we want to really understand that. And they saw that there was uh, money available for cross-border teams. And journalists in front of them said, okay, let's use the deadline, prepare an application, and then see, can we establish a team, can we get the money? And when they applied for funding, there were seven. And the way they went about was exactly that they need, they said, we need people from Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal. We need people who are data savvy. And um, all of a sudden, there were seven. The moment they published, I think there were 11 outlets. And then they, because they had um, compiled significant new data, 
um, they were quoted all over Europe. And they won the European Press Prize. And I talked to the jury member and said, I like that they started from scratch and built it up from there. And this is one of the, the they, they made a map and tried to, to map all the people who died trying to get into Europe or trying to get uh, asylum in Europe. This is, of course, the Mediterranean and, and, the, and the Sahara. We know that, but it's good to have facts. And this was a few, I mean, if we look at when it happened, shortly afterwards, everybody started to talk about migration over the Mediterranean Sea. Whether there is a correlation, I leave to the media scholars to find out. Um, but time-wise, it happened very close to it. So these are the deaths? These are the deaths. They only count the deaths. And they had... And they're counting deaths in, in Sweden as well? Just looking at the docks when and they, the top. Yeah. The, this is all, the, all attempts of, of uh, getting into Europe and getting from illegal to legal. And they had, um, they published in all over the, one of the things they discussed um, was how to present it, because there were some very serious mainstream media, and then there was um, Le Monde Diplomatique, where they wanted to write in a much more opinionated style. And so the, the mainstream, we are a completely uh, objective approach, was like, okay, easy now. How, how are you going to do this, that you use this to write a very opinionated piece, we use it to write an attempted objective piece. So they had this kind of discussions in the team, which is very typical for this kind of thing, because you have different approaches in the different countries. And um, this was Belgium. And this was uh, this quote, ces gens-là sont morts, ce ne sont plus des migrants, was one official they, they interviewed who said, well, we don't count them because they're dead. They're not migrants anymore. So why, what can, why, why do you come and ask for this? And they found this was so cynical that they put it on the, on the headline. They were really shocked. Now, when I'm here, I, I wrote a book about this. Um, I would like this method to be pushed into, or these experiences to be pushed into a methodology. Why? So we can pass it on to the next generation, and so that we can throw it out to you, so that you grab it and you develop it. Because it's just so necessary um, from the content of it. If we want to hold the power that governs us nowadays accountable, we have to use this. Not for all stories, but for some stories. And the way I try to do it is that we take a process step by step, and then we take how deep we go within this process. Because sometimes a very superficial contact will be plenty. Uh, you don't have to build a very close, very trustful team every time. This is how I try to depict the process. We start with a network or an idea. We start at the top. Maybe we're a bunch of Journalists, friends who say, okay, we want to grab you know, European spending. And then we dig deeper into that idea. Or we have, I have, someone has 
uh, a nice idea, a leak, a, a data set, uh, a lead, something that's smelly, and say, okay, I need to build a team to uh, document this working hypothesis. Then we have the team where we compose the competences. Uh, we build a research plan, like with any other research, we make a plan, who does what, at which time, um, except that here we have a few more uh, countries to include. Then there's research and analysis. Again, this is very much like what you do other, in other situations. Um, but in the re during the research, the potential can really unfold. Because just as an example, to get documents within Europe. In Northern Europe, we have a very strong freedom of information tradition. So we would rather easily file a complaint, uh, file a, an application, for documents or for a data set, and then get it or get it partially. It's very orderly and so on. What is really difficult is to get uh, internal court documents. Because everything is so well sorted, we wouldn't have leaks so much. And we wouldn't have developed, uh, I wouldn't have developed a network of sources that uh, you know, regularly gives me this type of leaks. Whereas in Southern Europe, <coughs> There's a very weak, if any, freedom of information legislation. But the journalists there have a very close, very systematic, very trustful relation with sources that give them documents. Bypassing or, you know, use their, that since there is no legislation about which documents should be kept by whom and should be delivered or not delivered to journalists, they have good contacts with sources. If, you, if these two supplement each other, you have all of a sudden a very nice variety of documents, different types of documents, different types of information. Um, again, with the publication, it can unfold because you have different targets, as we talked about. Then I put a, a, a point called follow-up. And here I mean by follow-up that we go to a conference with peers and we share what we did. Uh, and I consider this part of the method. Why? When, when, I, have, when I know I'll have to follow up in after the project, I may keep a little log on what I do. This is a problem I ran into. And then a few days later, this is how I solved it. Because I know I'll be speaking about that at the conference. In the moment I do the log, I take the eagle's view on my own project. I step back. I try to get the whole picture. That's really helpful in the moment. I wouldn't do it if I didn't know that I have to present it. But because I know that I will present it, I do it. And then maybe I'll solve it much better in the moment here. The other thing which is good for me by trying to present it at the conference is that I present it, I say, okay, this is how I did the fact-checking, this is how I obtained documents, da, 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 very serious, and so on. And then everybody who listens to me says, oh, she's serious. <laughs> um, and she is in my field of interest. And the next time when they need an EU nerd, they grab me. And so all of a sudden, I build this and this. And then the next story comes in. So the follow-up is helpful for me because it's the first step to the next story. And I'll go 
a little bit deeper into now when we talk about turning these experiences into a methodology I'll, I won't go for each step but I will go into the ideas and uh, this was supposed to turn the team red um, how do we get ideas? I tried to put this in four steps. There's the actuality, then the organization stories, the chain stories, and the comparative stories. The actuality is uh, the refinery, refinery down by the harbor, something is exploding, it smells bad, and people have uh, symptoms of poisoning. All right, so what do I do? I look who owns the, this particular part of the harbor, who owns the ship, who owns the ship load, and then I look into the symptoms and so on. This is actually a story that has happened, or it's an example that was done with a Norwegian-Dutch uh, UK collaboration. Um, in Norway, a shipload exploded, people had poisoning, the authorities tried to, to uh, or at least the, there were difficulties to, the, the doctors experienced difficulties to figure out what actually was in that shipload. Two Norwegian journalists did a broadcast about that, and then they said, okay, let's go further and see who actually owned that ship. It was an international company. A similar shipload, or assumed similar shipload, had been uh, sent to the Ivory Coast, and there was a court case going on in London by the Ivorians who had similar symptoms of poisoning, and even some of that. And so then the BBC, The Guardian, the Norwegian television and the Dutch Volkskrant, because they had some been an issue with the same company in the harbour of Rotterdam, collaborated. And while The Guardian and the BBC at some point had a double gag, which means that they are not allowed to write about it, and they're not allowed to write about, it, about the fact that they're not allowed to write about it. Um, and in the meantime, the Norwegians, because they had obtained an internal document that they were not supposed to mention, in the meantime, the Norwegians, under a different legislation, had everything online. You could just click on it. In Norwegian? In, uh, there was an English, an in internal document, English language. Sure. And they translated the online piece, the online summaries into English so that uh, they were accessible. And the Guardian, the Guardian did a good thing, though. Uh, there was a, an, M, an MP here who asked a question about this. And then the Guardian. Uh, wrote a front page story saying this is the first time since 1600 whatever that we are not allowed to quote from the parliament. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is actuality. When something explodes in your background, grab it. Grab it. Um, when there's a police report about labor slaves, you know, don't if you have the time, don't just leave it as a police report about labor slaves being discovered in central Copenhagen. You don't have labor slaves in Copenhagen, right? These were, uh, I think they were from Romania and Bulgaria. Find a Romanian or Bulgarian colleague and try to figure out what really happened. We don't want to accept labor slaves here. So that's an actuality. Grab the story when you have time, when it's important enough, because it's extra work. If it's important enough, do it. Organization stories, as we talked about, the EU, um, World Trade Organization, all these things. Chain stories, uh, one of the first stories that Journalism Fund, uh, did I tell this to you, to you just, or did I tell it here already? It was the labor slaves from the Ukraine, uh, Moldova and Romania, organized by Ukrainians. They were working in the Czech Republic with 
armed guards uh, picking asparagus. Um, and this, the Czech company was owned by a Dutch company, so the asparagus were sent to the Netherlands. Now, if I was a Dutch journalist who knows about Dutch companies, Dutch uh, agricultural business, etc., I wouldn't dare to go to the Ukraine or be able to go to the Ukraine and look into organized crime there. But if we have a team who has the languages, we can do it together, and we can publish in each of our country. Because in the Ukraine, you would obviously go to try to point out who, who are the people behind. In Romania and Moldova, you would warn people to not be lured into this kind of job. In the Czech Republic, you would say, what? This is going on in my country? Armed guards? Labor slaves? And in the Netherlands, you would say, this company is using slave labor. They shouldn't, according to Dutch law. So there would be very different stories along this chain. So every time you have legal or illegal trade, there is a demand and supply and transit. Old story, but you need to cover it all the way, and it's easier to do that in a team. And then I write the comparative stories, because um, very often we have very similar stories. They may not be the same legislation, but very similar stories country by country. Um, I think I'll rush forward. Uh, we yeah. don't have terribly much time. One thing is the degrees of cooperation. Um, we don't have to collaborate very closely every time. Um, so the, the networking, when, when I was a Brussels correspondent, I had to fill a lot of columns every day. Um, and I had my, my favorite themes those years I was there from when, the, when there was a lot of surveillance, anti-terrorism measures. So that was much of my beat. And I would have a network of colleagues in other countries who had similar interests. And we would then say, did you read this court case? Really interesting, particularly point 162. And, um, so if I send it to the others who knew that I was reading these court cases, they wouldn't have to read all right, and we could supplement each other. That was just in the daily coverage, and making it much easier. But the next time I would know that this colleague, who had helped me and whom I had been in touch with, would, worry, would be interested, and then maybe we develop the trust and at some point do something deeper. Then the one-off is just you know, asking for help, and. Uh, could you look this up in your language or something easy, not, nothing big, because we are all busy. Don't ask some big favors. Um, the extra lead is when we had a story, I won't go to the, to the example, but then uh, I will a little bit. In Denmark, there were some journalists who had found out, they, they were searching about um, trafficked women uh, in prostitution in Denmark. And there is a daily newspaper tabloid, which has three, four, five of these pages, still today, still on paper, which is advertising for prostitution. And so they went through that for, I think, a month, and they did some coding and figured out what are the codes for trafficked women. And the Baltic sex princes, obviously, is Eastern European. They had Russian, all sorts of, they had all sorts of codes for women, Asian women, Russian women, Baltic women, chocolate pussy is an African woman, etc. So they found these codes and they dug into the uh, ownership of the, of the brothels and, and wrote series of, uh, long series of articles. 
And I stumbled, this is a map of all the brothels where trafficked women in Denmark. In Denmark <coughs> so, but they, f they found one senior, very important Belgian businessman who was on the board of this porn cinema. And uh, porn cinemas aren't illegal, but they rented rooms to the trafficked women. And that's illegal because they made huge money on renting very small rooms to these women. And so the police was investigating him. And they was like, why would you know, a senior Belgian businessman who, who owns supermarkets by the chain, why would he sign off every year the, the records of this porn cinema? And so this was a one-off, you know, just a lead to a Belgian colleague, which was then passed on to a Belgian colleague. And I assisted her in doing it, and she did the story. It's called the, the, the connection of the night with Danish porn, uh, with porn, and a night because the Belgian king had just made him a knight. <laughs> just to be clear, what's the Danish connection here? Because you started with the Danish newspaper. Is this the same story? It's the same story, it's just, there was the, the Danish journalist doesn't have an interest in the Belgian yeah. businessman, so they gave away this very good idea to a Belgian journalist, who then picked it up and unfolded the story, which wasn't possible before that. But the, what is in it for the Danish journalists? A, they get uh, the story out because it's important, and B, they see how does she do it, how does she work with it, and then that means next time, yes. We work with her, with the Belgian journalist, because she did it very well, very thoroughly, fact-checking and so on. So this was a sort of one-off, just you know, a test case, because when you want to do a very close collaboration, you need to trust each other. So this kind of test cases would be in a, have an important role. The farm subsidy project is a more loose collaboration. This is what got me going really, because. Uh, since the 60s, uh, a lot of euros have been paid to farmers. Every year it's about 60 billion nowadays. And until 2004 it was secret, nobody knew who got it. The political narrative was, this is for our poorest farmers. Um, and the EU wouldn't give me the data. I, was, I just arrived in Brussels, they, they said, no, you don't get them. We have them, but you don't get them. Um, so we established a network and got them out capital by capital by capital. Warsaw, Helsinki, and so And then these were the stories. Yes. <laughs> this is how the common agricultural policy helps our poorest farmers. And then there's uh, British nobility there. <laughs> the Prince of Wales there, which is uh, one of the poorest farmers. Yeah. <laughs> the, queen, yeah. the Queen as well. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this was very, uh, the, the same story. This was downtown Madrid. Um, because you farm subsidies. This is farm subsidies, yeah. A map of downtown Madrid where uh, farm subsidy beneficiaries live. Okay. Where they live. Where they live. Well, ha yes. have addresses. Have yes, addresses. Yes. This, is, this is basically the same story as in the UK, except this was then in Germany when we got out the data in Germany. Yeah. Uh, again, German nobility. In the family since 1600, whatever. Uh, and then how many <coughs> euro they get per year. And that was a breakthrough in Germany because in Germany they are very uh, reluctant to give data on individuals. And the very close cooperation is one where we looked into uh, side effects of medicines. And I, I had access to the side effect reports in Denmark, but I had zero experience with pharmaceuticals. 
So I needed someone who was an expert on that. And because I had these documents, or I knew there was precedent to get these documents, I was able to get one of the best in the field in Europe. Because when I was introduced to him, I said, I have these documents. Can you help me uh, find, you know, find the right request? He said, you have these documents? Let's cooperate. And that's, that's a very good point, because it needs to be a mutual interest. It needs to be a shared interest. If I come and say, would you help me with a lot of work and you have no interest? I mean, why, you, you, you need to make a living, right? You need to write your own news. Um, and so there we found out that, that we, we got the side effect reports. We sent them to five independent uh, researchers in the field. And they said they would never dare to use these reports for their own scientific work. In other words, we are guinea pigs and the, the alleged reporting is not scientifically sound. Um, and one of the EU's favorite patient organizations at the time was uh, almost 100% paid by the, by the pharmaceutical industry. So that's the, cl the close-up cooperation, which is the most intense one. That means we have strong obligations within the team, but we publish simultaneously, or we can agree on publishing simultaneously. Well, the farm subsidies we published whenever we got the data in one country, so the effect wasn't Europe-wide. Here we had the same discussion in three countries at once. With the Lux Leaks, you had the same discussion, or you set the same agenda in 20-plus countries at once. And let's stop here. I, I argue we should move towards a methodology and we should learn from other professions. And then we should read more. Okay, fine. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you.